Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we'll be talking with Paul Miller, author of the book, Love Walked Among Us. The Ministry Network Podcast is sponsored by Westminster Theological Seminary. To learn more about Westminster and its online degree programs, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. Now, let's talk with Paul. Well, Paul, can you walk us through just as granular and practical as you can get? What are some tactics that maybe you found useful or you've coached other people to use as they're trying to embrace this vision of how Jesus loved? Let me actually go uh, higher and then go lower, okay? So 30,000 feet, then we'll drop down to ground level. So there are three principal things that struck me. There's much more than this, but there, I, I, I have the book around three general things, and they line up to everything that we see in the Old Testament. So the first one is Jesus' compassion, you know, chesed love, that covenant love. His, that's that incarnation. So there's compassion. And then the second thing is his, which is his honesty, which I was just, I was stunned by his compassion. I was stunned by his honesty. I mean, it's just, it takes your breath away. I mean, he's at this, Luke 14, is at this guy's house for dinner. And he tell, he, the first thing he says, he tells all the guests that, that the way they sat wasn't really the smartest thing in the world. Uh, he tells them a parable about, you know, about, look, because he saw them jostling to get ahead. And he says, and he, he gives them a kind of a funny piece of advice which comes out of Proverbs, which is if you really want to get ahead, go down low. And when the master corrects, you know, the seating order, which is very common, you'll even see that in Africa, when he corrects the seating order, then you stand up to move to a better space. Everyone notices you. So it's just brilliant. And then he turns to the host and say, by the way, next time you invite a party, you know, go out and invite the poor and the blind and the lame because... This looks like love, but it really isn't because everyone here is going to invite you to their house. It's like a non-taxable exchange. But I, I mean, he's introducing everyone to the world of love. And, and that's his honesty that I just found stunning. So his compassion, his honesty. But the hardest part, and it was Edersheim more than anything that helped me to see this, because he said, because what Edersheim does is he go, he organizes all the four Gospels chronologically, as best we know, and he walks you through that. And Edersheim was the first, you could call him a binary scholar, who was both steeped in the Reformation, but he was raised as an Orthodox Jewish scholar. So he knows the Talmud inside and out, which has come under some... That's not been in fashion, but uh, with scholars, because it's a little later. But increasingly, the mission and the Talmud, you, you hear scholars thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe they are a little closer than we... But anyway, he really knows the Jewish mind. And so he sits on this idea of that at the center of who Jesus is, is his will surrendered to his father. And it is just, if you, from John 5 through 12, it's like every other verse is on something on Jesus' submission of his will. Jesus is the obedient son. And let, let me explain that third area. So here you are, you've got this polarities of, and I like to think of them, I think they'd line up with Calvin's 
priest, prophet, priest, and king. The priest, the compassion, the prophet, honesty, and the king, the will. So let's start out with the priest, prophet, you know, compassion, honesty. I mean, we're struggling with that all the time with your children, your friends, relatives, work. Just do I speak the truth or do I try to understand the person? And how do I balance those? What do I do? How do I do it? Some of the way Jesus combines honesty and compassion, like in Luke 7 with Simon, is just stunning. And anyway, but what you see, I think of that like a triangle with compassion, honesty is the two upper corners. And then what shapes that is Jesus' will, his dependence. And that's the world of prayer. That's the world of the Spirit. And it's the world of waiting on God. And it's where at the deepest part of my heart, like Jesus, I say, and I'm quoting John 5, 19, I do nothing on my own. I just do what I see my Father doing. And so you're, I, this is the world where you say yes. So unit three of Love Walked Among Us studies, when does Jesus say yes? When does he say no? How do you see him balancing those two? And part of our whole grid is that sort of to follow Jesus is you're sort of saying yes all the time. But Jesus is clearly doing both. And he puts up walls. He penetrates walls. And it's just fascinating to actually study those patterns. And it gives you, by the time you're finished studying it, you say, I need Jesus in me to do Jesus out of me. You know, I, I, and let me just give you a quick example. And one of the first times this particularly, this one, and this is now I'll go down to ground level. How does this work? I was, this is many years ago, but it was the first time this clicked in my life. We had a TV in our basement when we lived in Cheltenham, not too far from Westminster. And Kim was about 11 years old and she has quite, you know, she's got fine motor, gross motor problems, motor planning. She can walk though. And she was taking coloring books and she was, no, she's taking a box of crayons and some, a big stack of Richard Scarry books down to the basement. And she was halfway down. I was in the kitchen. I could hear her. And she was, she was going down the basement steps on her bottom because she couldn't walk and hold them at the same time. And about halfway down the steps, she spilled the crayons and they went all over the place. And I popped up from my seat and went over to Kim. She was in the middle of the steps. The crayons are all over. Uh, and I said, Kim, do you want me to help you? Now, isn't that, I mean, so, so what a big deal. Now, let me see. Me asking that question was a miracle. Why was it a miracle? because I'm a fixer, you know what I mean? And I'm good, right? So obviously kid wants help, but I was so convicted of that time of my pushing into people's lives with my good things and just learning to wait and asking questions more. And so instead of, and, and partly, because I genuinely wanted to help and partly because I wanted efficiency. And I, and I, so I asked a question because that's what Jesus did. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to presume that I would know best. And the word for that, and think of the triangle, 
the, the word for that, when you push into people's lives to do them good, when it's just your will, and but you're above them because you're making the decision, that's paternalism. And it's loving the way I think you ought to be loved without entering your world. And it's one of the most irritating sins there is out there, you know, <laughs> because, and it's very confusing to the person who's being paternalistic because you genuinely want to help and you're motivated by love, but you're not really taking time to understand the other person. And it's a big word in the world of missions, but it's not necessarily made itself into the world of reformed males. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway... One step at a time. It took a while to get in my, in this reform mail. So anyway, I was just aware of how strong my will is. And I just, I was doing more asking questions. And I, I still have to relearn this because I'm such a entrepreneur. I think of ideas. I'm, God's given me a quick mind. And so I can just use that to run over people. And when I feel that churning, I have to go to prayer. If I don't start asking my father to give me the spirit so Jesus can dwell in my heart, and I'm paraphrasing Paul's great prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, I run over people. And I mean, just last week, I apologized to one of our best managers for, you know, and I tell our managers my tendencies that I say, look, if you see me do it, you come to me. Usually I pick them up in my own life, but not always, you know. And so anyway, think of that triangle. And so if when they're all working, then I have compassion and honesty up at the corners and they're fed by a dependence on Jesus. But if that dependence on Jesus is not there, then my self-will is there and then that self-will comes up and converts compassion into paternalism. So I'm motivated by compassion, but I'm running over you. And so to my everlasting, back to Kim, to my everlasting surprise, I said, Kim, do you want me to help you? And she said, she shook her head no. And I was, I still, I, I don't, I mean, it was, it was, this was a grand mall miracle for me to wait. I just waited there and I just knew the spirit wanted me to wait because I wanted to make sure she was okay. And I waited, I mean, it took her about 10 minutes to pick up about 20 crayons and think of how much better that was for my soul and how much better that was for Kim. Kim got to clean up where she had done something, which is really important. It's a maturing thing. It was, she hadn't sinned, but it was good for her to have the skill of doing that. And for me, it was good for me to wait. Patience, you know, the old King James translate patience suffering long, which is one of the two Greek words on patience. And it's the word for the wealthy, powerful person, what patience is like for them. Because for them, their most expensive commodity is their time. And so for me to stand down and to wait and give Kim space cost me time. And that's a wonderful gift to give to Kim. Does that make sense, James? Does that? Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's such a... And man, it's so convicting too. 
I've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. That's one thing I've learned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it is something, you know, see, Jesus, we, we have these discipling tracks, and one of them is our person of Jesus track, where you just immerse yourself in the person of Jesus, and you just you immerse yourself in his world. And it's just a delightful thing to do. So you gave examples about how when the will goes wrong, compassion turns to paternalism. What about the honesty? Oh, yeah, that that one, same thing happens there. So when the will is off, when it's my self-will, and there's nothing worse than spiritual self-will. By spiritual, I don't mean capital S spiritual. I mean small s, like religious, you know what I mean? Spiritualized, right, would be the great, better way to say it. So spiritualized self-will, where you're running over someone in the name of Jesus, and you get irritated with them that they don't receive your love. But what happens, I'll tell you what it is. When self-will dominates honesty, you get harsh and quarrels. And let me explain that. So let's say, let's do a husband-wife. You could do it either way, but I, I use, in the book, I use a husband to a wife. So the husband, let's say there's something in his wife's life. Let's say she was unnecessarily harsh with one of the kids the day before. And let's say he prayed about it. Should I say something to my wife or... You know, she's done it two or three times. I think I ought to talk to her about it. And so he's prayed about it. He's done all the right things. And he goes to her and he gives her an honest word. And he does it gently, let's say, Honey, do you think you were a little harsh with our daughter yesterday when she did so-and-so? And let's just imagine this scenario. Let's say, just for imagine, she doesn't say, Oh, honey, I thank you for rebuking me. I woke up this morning feeling proud and thinking I was harsh and you've blessed me with that rebuke. So let's just imagine she doesn't say it. You know, let's say, let's imagine she said, just suppose, for instance, and let's say she comes back at you and say, and either, you know, it could work either way. Let's say she comes back at you and says, honey, you do the same thing with our son. Now, ah, uh, this is great. Now, wait a minute. My wife not only has not listened to me, but she's retaliated. I've done her good. So now I've got two problems. I got the problem of her harshness yesterday, and now she's being harsh today. So, honey, you're doing the same thing right now. Or, honey, what do you mean? You're changing the subject. So what you've done there is now she has treated you with disrespect, let's say, and she's retaliated. And so now you're not going to treat me that. So now your self-will, the flesh clicks in and you say, honey, this is about you, not me. I don't, you know, let's deal with one problem at a time. Let's start with your problem. Then we'll go to my problem. So what would incarnation look like? I mean, how would you, what would you handle your wife if she does that? You can incarnate and you can learn from that. You can say to her, what do you mean? And can you give an example when I did that? And you could do it in a tone, hopefully, that, that's soft. And then you can let her change the subject so she wins. And you haven't died. It's a legitimate question on her part. Maybe, I mean, we know from Paul, from Romans 2, that what we see in other people, we tend to have the same problem. So, biblically, that's a legitimate point she has. Should she be saying it? No, but that's secondary. And so I can learn. So what I do is I stand out. I let her change the subject. I let her take the focus off herself 
to me. In other words, I've given her the gift of honesty. It's a gift. If she doesn't want it, that's between her and God. And most people, my experience is, they hear you. They just don't like to say it. And you could just say it and give them space, you know, and she's driving you lower. And what, back to the J-curve book, so it's a little dine. It's going down into the death, down, the J, down into death. So she's pushing you into a death and she's helping you put to death something in you. And you offered her some help. She rejected it. And now she offers you help so you can take her help. And the only way you can do that is if the spirit helps you. You got to pray your way into that. Does that make sense? Does that kind of click it clicks because I think one thing that I've noticed is my wife and I have tried to practice this, which is really tough, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is that you realize that you're both trying to find ways to diffuse conflict. Right. You're competing. You're trying to score points. Right. And you've got to kind of step up across from the negotiation table, walk around and sit on their side. Yeah. And say, we're on the same team. We're, you know. Yeah. The problem is that our kids are being spoken harshly to. If I'm causing that too. One thing I always find is whenever, you know, should my wife say back to me, well, you're harsh too. But oftentimes she is following my example. Yeah. You know, yeah. I actually did create a context where we're harsh to each other, you know. Yeah. And let's say it's 60% your wife, 40% you. The whole idea of, of what Jesus says about the, the beam and the speck is take care of your 40%. And it's just possible it's higher than 40%. You know, that's hence the beam. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and it's interesting. David Pallison pointed this out to me 25 years ago that I, I had missed in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, is that when you take your beam out of your own eye, you then eventually come back to dealing with their speck. You know, in secular liberalism and a lot of the current dialogue, it's all incarnation. It's a lot of people want one-way dialogue. They want uh, dialogue on their terms. And so if you've taken the beam out of your own eye, they think, well, now you have no right to ever deal with my speck. But no, 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 no. Jesus is saying there's th there you should do good honesty, but just there's an order to it. First, apply God's word to your heart. And then out of that, and what you what that does is it restores integrity because who you are as a person matches what you say. And Jesus drives it integrity relentlessly. The hypocrite is someone who lacks integrity. They say one thing and they do something else. And one of the beautiful things with Jesus, because of his integrity, you can take what he says and what he does and line them up. It's just, there's such a beauty to that. Let me do something really quick from a J-Curve book on Paul, where he does that, and he talks about how he does it. So 1 Corinthians 8, where he's talking about the strong need to give up their rights and lower themselves into the world of the weak. The next chapter, Paul spends the whole chapter talking about how he did that in his tent making, that he surrendered his rights and by the way, not an original idea. Thistleton, the British scholar, his commentary on 1 Corinthians, if you're a pastor or Bible study leader, is just stunning. I think it's Anthony Thistleton, 
Uh, I think he's probably retired now. He's a British scholar, but he really gets this whole idea of dying and rising. As long as I'm doing commercials for scholars, O'Brien's Philippian scholar, which is out of print because he didn't do a very good job footnoting, is absolutely brilliant. I just, he understands. So if you can find it, you got to get it. (laughs) Yeah, if you can find it, it's just, I got it before there was this big mess with him. But anyway, two of my favorite commentaries. Fantastic. Can I close with one Jesus story that we did that just, it's one of my favorite stories. And let me tell you two stories. One is, I have done this with probably about 15 groups of pastors, and I have them read the first six verses of John 13 on the foot washing. And I balance out so there's a much foot wa- actual foot washing text is actually the pretext. And I, I say, what strikes you about this text? 95% of the comments I get are not on the actual foot washing, but on the theological commentary. Because our epistemology is a little off too. That when we think of theology, we think of systematic statements about Jesus as opposed to the actual foot washing, which is also theology. And the foot washing of Jesus that he does is is just stunning. And I asked the pastors, what do you notice about it? And it takes them a while to, because they have no category. They've not been taught this. Most pastors have never run across this. So they don't, they don't really know, even all the major commentaries, like on that passage, don't really, they don't notice. Like one of the things that's striking about the foot washing is Jesus' silence. He doesn't say anything. And then I'll ask them, what does his silence do to the disciples? I mean, it, it, what does it do to you reading the text? And it, what it does is it rivets you. It just, it makes his foot washing just outstanding. And another thing that really comes through in the text is John makes seven moves. Jesus got up from the table. He took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, got a basin, filled it with water, washed their feet, and dried it with a towel around his waist. And by the way, it's the only description we have in foot washing in the entire ancient world. And it's just, I just, I just think that's mind-blowing that it took the Son of God to give us a, a physical description of foot washing. We would not have known that they used a towel or that they got a basin of water. We didn't know any of that because no one ever mentioned Every other reference to foot, and foot washing was very common. I mean, actually in the Roman world, slaves, one of the sort of a throwaway word for slaves was foot washers. Like, get those yokels, get those foot washers over here. You know what I mean? And that whole idea, there's just so many things in the, there's so much unstudied, like the way Jesus uses space, his silence The way, actually, what it does is it creates space that other people will emerge. And let me tell you, the oddest, I realized this for the oddest time. There were two reasons I realized it, is I'm a good Presbyterian, so I don't leave a lot of space. I talk, okay? (laughs) All my training is on filling space, okay? (laughs) So, but I noticed it. When in reading the apocryphal gospel of Peter, so this is the fake gospel of Peter, 
when Jesus comes out of the tomb, his head, he's got two angels on either side, and the angels reach up to the clouds, and Jesus' head goes above the clouds, and there's a cross, a gigantic cross following Jesus. I mean, this is a 5,000-foot Jesus, you know I mean? With two 3,000-foot minimum angels, you know what I mean? I mean, this is massive. And it's interesting, and you know, this is 100, 150 years after, I mean, it's all made up. And for those of you who are concerned that I'm reading the Gospel of Peter. But the contrast with John and the way he meets Mary is just, he's quiet. He's not even, he's actually quiet when he's, you tell us the way John describes the dialogue. When she's talking to the angels, he's just standing there. And then he asks her a question, who are you seeking? Which is a theme in John. Because Jesus is seeking her. And then out of that, Mary emerges a little bit and says, oh, you know, I'm missing Jesus. If you know where he is, I'll get him. It's the only rich comment we have from Mary Magdalene. You can tell a bunch of things about her because of it. She's take charge. We know she's wealthy. She's upper class. She came from Magdala, which is like, oh, where do you live? You know, I... I have to think of some neighborhood, you know. The Hamptons. The Hamptons, you know. I live in the Hamptons, you know. I mean, that immediately tells you about something, about them. And Jesus lets her emerge. And he has the greatest announcement in the history of humanity. And he takes time to care for a person. And out of his silence, out of his questions, his waiting. So I can, you know, as pastors and leaders, we can leave more space to let people emerge around us by listening. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. This was just, oh man, such a wonderful, awesome time. This has made my week. That's great. That's great, James. It's great. Good to be with you. Join us next time as we talk about marriage communication with Robert Flood. In the meantime, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree to learn about the new online offerings available at Westminster Theological Seminary.